Is the way to heaven up or is the way to heaven down? Let me ask that again. Is the way to heaven up or is the way to heaven down? A few years back, I got sucked into a program on public television about a team of researchers on Mount Everest searching for the remains of Andrew Irvin and George Mallory in hopes of finding evidence in Irvin's camera that he and Mallory were the first to summit Everest, not Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, who reached the peak in 1953. On June 4, 1924, Mallory and Irvin set off from the advanced base camp of Mount Everest at about 21,000 feet in wool clothes and leather boots toward the summit nearly 8,000 feet above. Four days later, a climber 3,000 feet below spotted them on the three steps about 1,000 feet from the top. When word arrived in England that they were lost, Great Britain hailed them as national heroes. Attending their memorial at St. Paul's Cathedral were King George V, the Prime Minister, many dignitaries, and members of the royal family. Unfortunately, though the researchers did find Mallory's frozen body and many personal effects, no Irvin and no camera. Previously, in 1918, Mallory wrote these words, one must conquer, achieve, get to the top. One must know the end to be convinced that one can win the end. To know there's no dream that mustn't be dared. This is, is this the summit crowning the day? How cool and quiet. We're not exultant, but delighted, joyful, soberly astonished. Have we vanquished an enemy? None but ourselves. Have we gained success? That word means nothing here. Have we won a kingdom? No. And yes, we have achieved an ultimate satisfaction, fulfilled a destiny. Whether Mallory and Irvin reached the summit is a mystery. What is not a mystery is the primal urge that drove them to try. Like Mallory, the urge to climb personal mountains of achievement and to win in the end, or at least get the bumper sticker to show that we finished, drives us. We live in a success-driven culture where social media profiles paint flattering pictures that invite approval from liking followers. Mallory's urge to reach the summit lives in us and around us as we are measured and measure ourselves against others, hoping to win the kingdom of ultimate satisfaction and achieve a heroic destiny. The struggle upward is okay, as long as the sacrifice of time and effort relationships and things produces a reward of greater things and greater privileges and greater relationships and greater comforts. 
Before diving into Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9, and the transfiguration, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling through northern Caesarea Philippi in Israel and have arrived at the base of Mount Hermon. Behind the Jordan River Valley cascades down toward Jerusalem. Ahead is a giant snow-capped mountain rising 9,000 feet above. Maybe not as daunting as Everest, but the disciples were wearing sandals. Also foreboding, the mountain was believed to be the dwelling place of powerful gods like the Canaanite god Baal Hermon, for whom the mountain was named and was thought to reside on top. Also close by, you might remember, was the cave that many considered to be the gate to hell. With this backdrop, the prospect of climbing up the mountain of scary gods was before them when Jesus asked in Mark 8:27, "Who do people say that I am?" And they told him, "John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets." And they asked and he asked them, "But who do you say that I am?" And Peter replied, "You are the Christ." As Christians, we can easily agree with Peter's answer. From Peter's call to discipleship when his brother Andrew, a disciple of John the Baptist, brought him to Jesus, Peter had been with Jesus. Peter saw every miracle. He heard every parable. Peter even heard other people, even demons, announce that Jesus was the Messiah. What's most amazing about Peter's proclamation here at the end of chapter 8 is that it took half the gospel to get there. Why did it take so long? Through the centuries, the church has turned the disciples into these uh, glorified figures on a pedestal, like the unreachable heroes of myth and legend. But Mark's gospel is unlike the other synoptics. It's not a theological proof of Jesus' messianic identity for the Gentiles or for the Jews. Rather, Mark is a series of episodes in the ministry of Jesus with his disciples that reveal Jesus' identity gradually. And with almost equal weight, the meaning of the call to discipleship. The disciples have left families and homes and jobs and journeyed far from home convinced that with Jesus, they will win the end. When Jesus fulfills his destiny, they hope that they too will fulfill their destiny. If they must go up the mountain, they will go. But in spite of their close proximity and relationship with Jesus, all that they have seen, heard, and had explained, something is missing. Such that they are frequently wrong and only ever partially correct. They often want to go one way when Jesus is going another. You might remember, for example, when a woman needing healing touches Jesus in a crowd, in a hurry the disciples want to press on, but Jesus stops, waits, calls her daughter, and then heals her. When Jesus wants to send the crowd away to, to their homes to find food, Jesus says, you give them something to eat, and feeds 5,000. 
When people bring children to Jesus to lay hands on them, the disciples want to send them away. But Jesus says, let the children come to me. Staring up the slopes of Mount Hermon with the big question answered, Jesus delivers a message aimed at the call to discipleship and brings us to the life-altering importance of the transfiguration. In chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said these things plainly. Later in verses 34 to 8, he says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever desires to lose his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Will they go up or will they be going down? Jesus confronts the disciples with a paradox of glory. Both his glory and ours as disciples. His glory will be through death. And the disciples' glory will be through the way of suffering. The message so shockingly defies all reason that like Peter, we can neither buy it nor sell it without the power of God to confirm it. Often, like Peter and the disciples, we're willing for Jesus to hike up with us toward the summit, but not down into the valley of the shadow of death. To do that, we need proof. Mark chapter 9 verse 2 says this, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a mountain by themselves. Luke records they went up the mountain to pray. Why Peter, James, and John? Well, Peter, for obvious reasons. In chapter 8, after Jesus delivered the paradoxical message of his glory, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus' message was clear, but Peter refused to believe him. Jesus rebuked Peter, who, like Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness, was suggesting a crown without the cross. Peter could not accept this paradox of glory without proof. It's unclear why Jesus only took three disciples. But perhaps Peter's testimony about the transfiguration uh, from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 that April just read is a clue. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We ourselves heard this very voice, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's not using the royal we, but strengthening the reliability of his testimony by pointing out that he was not alone. Without others who would believe him. 
In Deuteronomy 19.16, it says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses, or three, shall a charge be established. Mark chapter, two, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 2 and 3, it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach. Here Peter, James, and John need a miracle to authenticate the message. That's what miracles do. For example, in the gospel, the message, messages about Jesus are often followed by a miracle. Just in, just in Mark, for example, Mark chapter 1, a man with an unclean, uh, unclean spirit says, I know you're the Holy One of God. An allusion to Psalm 43 and Psalm 71. The Holy One of God being the Savior. In response to this proclamation, Jesus says, Be silent and come out of him and cast the demon out, displaying his power and authenticating the message. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus uh, forgives the sins of a paralyzed man. And since the scribes rebuke him, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus challenges them, which is easier, to forgive sins or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk. Mark chapter 5, the Gerasene demoniac, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, proclaiming the identity of Jesus? A demon. Jesus replies, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit, and again cast the demon, cast out the demon, authenticating the message that he is the Christ. Similarly, the transfiguration miraculously authenticates the message that Jesus is the Son of Man. A messianic reference to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Here in verses 2 and 3, his clothes were radiant, intensely white, whiter than any uh, cleaner could get them, or your mother. The translation of Mark says, his, another translation of Mark says, his garments were glistening. Matthew says, his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. Luke says, his countenance was altered and his raiment was dazzling white. It reminds me of a friend of mine named Tom, who, finding his kids up to some mischief one night, sent them to bed. When he turned off the lights, he discovered that they had chewed the ends off of some glow sticks and covered themselves with whatever's inside, and they were glowing in the dark. I'm sure Tom's reaction is not the same as the disciples. Uh, Peter, James, and John were getting a marvelous glimpse at the glory of God, a confirmation of his divinity, God's glory manifest in Christ as light. You know, we like to say that God is love, but it's just as easy in Scripture to say that God is light. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, we read that after leaving Egypt, God led his people as a cloud by day and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. In Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 22, God is our light in darkness and no other. 
For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Talking about Jesus, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, 7 at the beginning of his ministry, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of God's glory. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, John later writes, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. How does John know? Because he's seen it. Six days after Jesus rebuked Peter, Jesus takes him along with James and John up the mountain where they witness this revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when he's transfigured before him. Having authenticated that Jesus is the Christ, the transfiguration next confirms that he must suffer, be rejected, and killed. Mark chapter 9, verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. First, a few words about the disciples. In Luke, Luke's account in Luke 9, verses 30 to 32, we learn that Moses and Elijah appeared to Peter, James, and John after they woke up from a deep sleep. Luke had said they had gone to pray. They were sleeping. When they awoke, they saw Jesus' glory. And he was talking to Moses and Elijah, and it says, about his departure, which he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his suffering and death on the cross in Jerusalem. The presence of Moses and Elijah is also important for other reasons. Just a few verses earlier in Mark 27, when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond, Elijah... John the Baptist or one of the prophets. Now Moses and Elijah are on the mountain speaking with Jesus. Now we know that Elijah was a great prophet who also spoke with God on the mountain in 1 Kings chapter 19. He's the one that Malachi said would return before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's also the one who Jesus identified as John the Baptist. The Elijah who is to come in Matthew eleven fourteen, We see Elijah fulfilling prophecy, confirming Jesus is not Elijah and not John the Baptist or another forerunner, but the Christ, supreme over all the prophets. About Moses, we know that he was the greatest prophet in all of Israel, in all of history who wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, and who spoke with God on Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. 
His presence confirms that Jesus is not one of the prophets. Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet. The implication is that while the word of Moses is great, the word of Jesus is greater. Later in Hebrews 3.1, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as a builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder is, of all things is God. Moses and Elijah are again on the mountain speaking to Jesus in his glory about his death, the, authenticating the message because he is superior and his word is superior. One would think that that would be enough for Peter and James and John. In Mark chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, though, we read, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I'm not sure that anyone would know what to say, waking up from a deep sleep and seeing Jesus radiating glory, speaking to Moses Elijah. One might first ask him the name of his cleaners. But in this awkward exclamation, Mark reveals three important things. Peter calls Jesus rabbi. It's a respectful title, but a little bit below the mark for Jesus displaying his messianic identity. Peter, drawing from scripture, concludes that this must be the holy convocation that God commanded Moses to hold on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, or booze in Leviticus 23. The third and most significant thing is that Peter was exceedingly afraid. And there you have it. Even with Jesus' luminous glory confirming the message with Moses and Elijah, Peter is trying hard to do the math using all his powers of biblical reasoning, but his heart is not moved. Why not? Isn't this like us? Even having seen the power of God and his faithfulness time after time in the past, Rather than faith for the future, we start doing the math. And unfortunately, we cannot get to an answer where one plus one does not equal negative two. Jesus' death on the cross and our suffering. Thankfully, we have a patient God who loves us and is faithful to those he calls even when we're not. In Mark Chapter 9, verses 7 to 9, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Reminiscent of the fiery cloud from which God spoke to Moses, that covered Mount Sinai, a bright cloud as Matthew described it, overshadowed them and the voice of God came from the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. In the King James it says, hear him. What more could be added to authenticate the message? At this point, there's only one thing and it hasn't happened yet. The disciples 
seeing a glimpse of Jesus' future glory, speaking to Moses and Elijah about his death in Jerusalem, even hearing the word of God, is still not enough. They are still unable to comprehend or accept what they've just seen or heard. From here to the cross, they continue to squabble about who will be the greatest. They take up swords to defend Jesus. They run away when he's arrested, tried, and crucified. But here at the Transfiguration, we see something wonderful. Peter, James, and John, fearful, still unsure, turn and follow Jesus down the mountain, down toward Jerusalem, and down toward the cross, where Jesus will reveal his glory in full through that one thing that still remains, his death on the cross and resurrection on the third day. Let me conclude this way. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, a day that marks a turning point in the Christian calendar from Epiphany to Lent, the penitential season of preparation for the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Just as the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9 verses 2 to 9 is a turning point for the disciples, I pray that it may be a turning point for us as well. You may not be convinced. There may be a lot about Jesus that you do not understand. In spite of all that he has shown you in the past, you may still be fearful. Later in Mark chapter 9, we hear these words. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's true for the disciples here. It's true for us. Through Peter, James, and John, God's word has made the call to discipleship accessible to us. They're so unremarkable. They're so fallible, just like us. Let us use this moment and the season that's ahead to stop and look at the mountain that we're climbing and consider that God's purpose for our lives is not to die heroically, frozen on the side of the mountain, but shockingly defying our expectations, God's call and purpose is the other way around. Absolute conviction is not required, only faith to go in a different direction. My brother Doug, who was a missionary doctor in China for 23 years and is now running a Christian medical clinic for the poor, gave a presentation years ago in which he had a quote, and I don't know who it was, I think it was Charles Spurgeon maybe. But in essence it was like this, the road to heaven is down, down, down. It's down in the dirt, it's down on our knees, in the dust where people live. 
The call to discipleship is not to die on the way up, but to live on the way down. His call to discipleship is turning from a hopeless kingdom without a cross to the real hope of a glorious heavenly kingdom that is all the way down. Down among the poor, the sick, the friendless, and the needy. Down where Jesus is going. And his word and his compassion where they're most needed. And even if, for us, it means suffering on Church Street or Wall Street or Main Street along the way, the season ahead is a journey down through the valley of deep darkness, down to Jerusalem, to the cross, to the grave, where we find the hope of the resurrection, and joy everlasting.